Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina High tries to wean the country off the inescapable lure of a relationship with an ex, Prime Minister. Model, activist and writer Monroe Bergdorf opens up about her revelatory new book, and a Harvard professor's lifelong work reveals the most important asset to our health and happiness. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, both Liz Truss and Boris Johnson blame us for their failed attempts at leadership, never themselves, and want to try again. But... As Marina Hyde explains, that just speaks to their massive self-delusion. Read by Evelyn Miller. Liz Truss is now eluded by two major types of growth, economic and personal. The past week has seen the former Prime Minister break her welcome silence with what her allies call a series of interventions. The one intervention that doesn't seem to have happened is the type where they sit you down and give you the hard truths about your behaviour. That treatment oversight has resulted in a spectacle of lavishly preposterous blame-shifting and self-delusion. As discussed here recently, both the previous two Prime Ministers, Truss and Boris Johnson, are at this game. We live in an era where people who have got all the way to the highest office in the land now hilariously claim structural discrimination against the fact that, after varying amounts of time, they just weren't good enough. When both of these chancers left office, they had not simply passed their best before date, They had sailed beyond the use-by date and moved formally into the realms of biohazard. Yet, instead of bucking the F up and accepting this, they have turned into the political equivalent of incels. Involuntarily rejected by the people who determine whether or not you get to be Prime Minister, 
and bleating about it in self-reflection-free style on every available forum. Was it the right decision? Truss mused of aspects of her mini-budget in Monday's interview with The Spectator. It's very hard to tell. To which the only conceivably sane reply must be, No, it isn't. No, it isn't. This financial event resulted in sterling shitting the bed, complete turmoil on the bond markets, central bank intervention, mortgages going up, and the seriously perilous possibility that the UK would have to default on its debt. Amazingly, those hints appear to have been too subtle. Or, as Liz puts it, you never know what the counterfactual looks like. Again, yes, you do. It looks like these things not happening because of the things you did. The way she tells it, Truss has spent the past three months trying to work out what happened during her straight-to-meme time in number 10. She has now left her yarn-cobwebbed investigation wall to report the results back to the general public. Verdict? I didn't get everything right. I mean, you think? Arguably, there was the odd flaw to the shortest premiership in British political history, and that includes the early 19th century guy who snuffed it with tuberculosis. But it seems that our flaws are the things that make us beautiful. Lettuces don't actually rot, they just achieve their final form. I assumed, on entering Downing Street, that my mandate would be respected. Truss now explains. How wrong I was. Is this the mandate from 81,000 serially wrong idiots? Righto. Perhaps the clue was in the process all along. You may have noted reports that the 1922 committee is considering changing the rules so that a leadership challenge to Rishi Sunak could occur after May's local elections, perhaps with a view to fulfilling the prophecy that, in the future, every Tory MP will be Prime Minister for 15 minutes. In the meantime, further eye-popping rebrands to the destruction wrought by Truss and her robot sidekick, Quasi Kwarteng, are being attempted. The financial meltdown that was demonstrably caused by her own mini-budget has been firmly pinned on others. In Truss's head, it is now something called the LDI crisis, named after the liability-driven investments somehow no one had warned her about, even though most of her lengthy Sunday Telegraph article and Spectator interview was spent apportioning blame to anyone in British economic life who might have served a warning function. These include, but are not limited to, the Treasury, the Office for Budget Responsibility, and ultimately, those mad lefties in the global financial markets. All of these many and varied entities had their warnings branded by Truss as resistance or simply as the more shadowy forces. 
Even the free markets, whose wisdom Truss had spent a career touting as the perfect mechanism for arbitrating on pretty much everything, turn out to have suffered from an unforgivable lack of imagination as far as her policies were concerned. In many ways, she was just a girl, standing in front of the free markets, asking them to love her. They couldn't. Still, maybe she can change them. Wherever you stand on the answers to the UK's spectacularly poorly managed decline, it is difficult not to be struck by the sheer nonsense victimhood of it all. For someone who has long cast herself as the implacable enemy of woke culture and snowflakes and all that jazz, Truss presents herself as the ultimate injured party. Perhaps there were hints of this in the leadership contest last summer, where her team decided to accuse Rishi Sunak of mansplaining for talking about the realities of the economy. This ludicrous notion that the world is stacked against the actual Prime Minister is now routinely said out loud by people who landed the biggest possible job and don't believe in a single other type of structural discrimination. I appreciate that another column merely adds to the pile. But already, huge amounts of airtime have been spent engaging with Truss's hyper-elite victimhood. Just as huge amounts of airtime will soon be spent again engaging with the wildly miscast victimhood of Boris Johnson, once the Standards Committee investigation into one fraction of his endless lies gets publicly underway. The country is in a toxic relationship with a number of our prime ministerial exes. Terminating contact must be the first step. That was Britain. We had a thing with Truss and Johnson, but it was toxic and we were right to end it. Just Walk Away by Marina Hyde. Read by Evelyn Miller. Next. For 84 years, the Harvard study of adult development has tracked the lives of hundreds of Americans. Now, its director Robert Waldinger explains to Amina Sena what has taught him about health, fulfillment and happiness. Read by Mark Elstob. In the 1980s, when data from the world's longest-running study on happiness started to show that good relationships kept us healthier and happier, the researchers didn't really believe it. We know there's a mind-body connection and we all pay lip service to it, says Dr Robert Waldinger, the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which has been running for 84 years. But how could warmer relationships make it less likely that you would develop coronary artery disease or arthritis? How could relationships get into the body and affect our physiology? Then, other studies started to show the same. We thought, OK, we can begin to have confidence in this finding. It was still a surprise, says Waldinger, but so convinced is he of this fundamental truth that the new book he has co-written with Dr Mark Schultz, The Good Life, focuses mainly on relationships and how to improve them. There are other components, of course, and they tend to be similar across countries, cultures and social grades. 
He points to the UN's annual World Happiness Report. These include good health and a healthy life expectancy, plus the freedom and capacity to make significant life decisions. Trust is important, he says, not just in friends and neighbours, but also in governments. One interesting thing that people mention around the world is generosity and opportunities to be generous, says Waldinger. Money, or rather economic security, is important. We are less happy when we struggle for food security and housing and all that, which is obvious, he says. What is less obvious is that above a certain income level, happiness doesn't go up by much. At least according to a 2010 study that set the threshold for US households at $75,000, £49,000 at that time. The enduring factor is relationships with other people. Waldinger has boiled down his definition of a good life to this. Being engaged in activities I care about with people I care about. Waldinger, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and a practicing psychiatrist, became director of the study in 2005. He is the fourth steward of the research, which began in 1938. Originally, there were two unrelated studies, one group of 268 students at Harvard, another of 456 boys from deprived areas of Boston, but they later merged. Over the years, whole lives have been recorded in real time. Health, employment, details about friends and spouses, religious beliefs, how they voted, how they felt about the births of their children, what they worried about in the middle of the night. The list seems endless. I'm sort of a voyeur, says Waldinger, beaming through my screen when we talk on a video call. I've followed all these lives. You can take someone's folder, thousands of pages, and you can flip through a life. Yes, we do a lot of sophisticated number crunching, but being able to read a life is pretty amazing. The study has its limits, he acknowledges. All the original participants were male, Waldinger introduced women by including their partners and children, and white, although this will change gradually as the more diverse third generation is brought in. For the book, he and Schultz include many other more diverse studies from around the world, but he stresses that they all show a similar pattern. The more socially connected you are, the more likely you are to live longer and live well. Loneliness is now considered to be as bad for your health as smoking, and there is a loneliness epidemic. The best hypothesis for which there's good data is the idea that relationships help us manage stress, says Waldinger. We know that stress is a part of life. What we think happens is that relationships help our bodies manage and recover from stress. We believe that people who are lonely and socially isolated stay in a kind of chronic fight-or-flight mode, where, at a low level, they have higher levels of circulating stress hormones like cortisol, higher levels of inflammation, and that those things gradually wear away different body systems. Can we really learn about happiness from white men, some incredibly privileged, John F. Kennedy was a participant, born in the US in the 1930s? Yes, 
says Waldinger. So much of this is about the basic human experience, which does not change. Waldinger subscribes to the theory that happiness falls into two categories. Hedonic well-being can be summed up as, am I having a good time right now, he says. Then there is the Aristotelian idea of eudaimonic well-being, that sense of life being meaningful and basically good. We don't necessarily enjoy the things that contribute to eudaimonic well-being. The example Waldinger likes to give is having to read the same story to your child at bedtime when you are exhausted after a hard day. Are you having fun? Is it hedonic well-being? No. But is reading that book for the seventh time the most meaningful thing you could do right then? Yes. Often there's this difference between what's fun right now and what we are invested in. Everyone needs a bit of both, he says. The problems tend to come from chasing only hedonic happiness, rather than the more mundane but ultimately more meaningful kind. We are also not very good at knowing what will make us happy. It is partly cultural. We receive messages constantly that we will be happy if we buy something, or if we have more money, or if we succeed at work. There was this really interesting survey where they asked millennials what they thought they were going to need to have a happy life, and fame was a really prevalent goal, says Waldinger. But it is also due to human nature. When researchers in one study asked people to talk to strangers on a train on their morning commute, those who had predicted it would be a negative experience discovered it was the opposite. Talking to strangers is a little risky, says Waldinger. Even calling a friend is risky because you don't know whether your friend is going to want to hear from you. Human relations always have that element of unpredictability. This is why staying in alone rather than going out can feel preferable. If I stay home and watch something on Netflix, it's a predictable evening for me. Part of it is this path of least resistance, away from relationships and towards something more predictable and manageable. Waldinger's parents were from the same generation as the study's first cohort. He had a happy childhood, although there were times when his mother, Miriam, didn't seem content. She was a clever woman who was unfulfilled as a housewife. They lived in Des Moines, Iowa, Midwest, small town, and the family was Jewish. Waldinger's father, David, went to law school but couldn't get a job when he left. That's what life was like for Jewish professionals in the United States in the 1930s. He went into business instead, but he didn't love it. The lesson his son learned was to pursue work that was enjoyable and meaningful. How aware was Waldinger of anti-Semitism as a child? A bit, he says. We were not significantly discriminated against, but it was there... It was under the surface, but in day-to-day -day life, he says, people were basically decent to each other. That's one of the things that's so hard now, because the right wing in the US and around the world is taking the lid off some of these prejudices, racism, anti-Semitism, and that's what I find so disheartening.
It's there to be tapped, it always has been. But in many times we're able to keep the lid on it. He didn't want to be a doctor. He wanted to be an actor and did drama alongside his academic studies. Before going to medical school, he came to the UK, where he had a fellowship at the University of Cambridge and continued theatre. I had such a good time, but I knew I wasn't good enough to be a professional. I was too thin-skinned. I wouldn't be able to take the rejections. Anyone who has watched Waldinger's 2015 TEDx talk, which has had more than 44 million views, will notice how that early theatre experience has translated into stage presence. Once he became a doctor, though, he found that he loved psychiatry. I was just fascinated by people's lives and how their minds worked. He looks incredibly happy, and he says he is. I'm in my early seventies, and basically my health is okay. I've done my best to take care of myself, but that's not the whole story. My happiness depends in part on luck, it depends in part on privilege. I have a partner, and it's a good partnership. He and his wife, Jennifer, a clinical psychologist, have been married for nearly 37 years and have two grown-up sons. Waldinger is also a Zen master, having discovered the Buddhist practice in his thirties. He leads a weekly Zen group and does his own daily 25-minute meditation. My wife calls it my great big hobby, he says. How important is religion or spirituality to happiness? The study has found that religious people are not more or less likely to be happy but that they find faith a solace in times of stress. He hasn't always been happy, of course. The times he describes as less happy are characterised by disconnection from other people. As a small-town boy who got a place at Harvard, he was miserable and lonely for at least his first year until he made friends. Later, when his children were small, his parents died. It was a really difficult time for a couple of years, he says. That was one of those life crunches. People go through those times and it can be really hard to sustain your happiness. It is unrealistic to be happy all the time, which sounds obvious, but the message has become that if you are not happy, you are not doing life right. Similarly, there is an idea that happiness is something you can achieve and then relax. The good life is a complicated life for everybody, says Waldinger. We study thousands of lives. Nobody is happy all the time. No one person on the planet that I've ever encountered. The myth that you could be happy all the time if you just do all the right things is not true. Happiness waxes and wanes. Happiness happens to us, he says. Assuming, and it is a big assumption at present, that your basic needs are met. But there are things we can put in place in our lives that make us more likely to feel happiness more of the time. Taking care of your health, diet, sleep and exercise are big ones. If you are in better health, you are more likely to be happy.
but so is taking care of your relationships. That's partly because they help us with the flip side. They don't just make us happy, they also help us weather the unhappy times, the challenges. In a world ravaged by Covid and economic crisis, we might feel that we are in particularly challenging times. But so did the first participants of the Harvard study, who had grown up in the Great Depression, and, when the study started, were months away from the outbreak of the Second World War. Many participants fought in it. We asked them what got them through it, and everybody said something about people. Soldiers said it was the people writing to me from home, and fellow soldiers. When people were asked about the Great Depression, it was the neighbours pulling together and sharing what limited resources they had, says Waldinger. What we find is that if people maintain a network of good relationships, they're more likely to weather the storms, and they're more likely to be happy. Every generation feels the world is going to hell, he says, but there are some unique things happening to us. Economic inequality is rising. It really matters. We know that collective well-being goes up when more people have their needs met. There is increasing social disconnection. Loneliness is on the rise, but also tribalism, and that is fuelled by the digital revolution. The study is starting to ask questions about social media usage and its effect on well-being. Other research is showing that if we use social media actively to connect with each other, that's more likely to enhance well-being. But if we passively consume, that often lowers our well-being. The study has made him pay more attention to his own behaviour, he says. I don't just let my wife run our social life. I used to say, just tell me where to be. Now... I'm more careful about my own relationships and making sure that I keep them up. He describes it as social fitness. You don't go to the gym once or twice and then assume your physical fitness has been addressed, he says. The same applies to friendships. Good relationships wither away from neglect. It doesn't have to be a problem of any kind, but if you don't keep them up, they fall out of your life. We find that the people who maintain vibrant social networks are the people who make an effort. It doesn't have to be big or time-consuming. A regular text, a coffee, a walk. And these can be tiny actions, but if you do them repeatedly, it keeps those networks vibrant. The quality of the relationship is important regardless of who it is with. Friend, partner, sibling... Neighbour. We asked people at one point, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? We believe that everybody needs at least one or two people like that, says Waldinger. If you don't have that, you're probably hurting. But then, beyond that, it really varies. A good relationship could be somebody you go to the pub with. Maybe you don't talk about anything personal, but you don't need to. Maybe you talk politics, and it helps you feel connected and like you belong. Casual connections 
a smile or a short conversation with the cashier in the supermarket or the bus driver can also bring benefits. Ultimately, it comes down to connection and belonging. Join that club. Don't use the self-service checkout. Text a friend and meet them. Read that story again to your child. Your health and happiness depend on it. That was Forget Regret, How to Have a Happy Life, According to the World's Leading Expert, by Amina Sena, read by Mark Elstob. We'll be back after this short break. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, she's the model, writer and activist who has been abused in her private life and vilified in public. Monroe Bergdorf talks to Simon Hattonstone about cancel culture, the battle over transgender rights and why writing her memoir was the most brutal form of therapy. Read by Evelyn Miller. This article touches on the topic of racism and includes description of sexual assault and suicide which some listeners may find upsetting. At the age of 13, Munro Bergdorf was a swimming sensation. But in her memoir, she barely devotes a sentence to her feats in the pool, merely saying she swam at national level, was ranked 11th in the country, and didn't have her heart in it. That's all. She doesn't tell us whether she enjoyed swimming, trained hard, or dreamed of competing in the Olympics. Not even her stroke of choice or distance. Now I'm curious. Fancy being so brilliant at something, yet so indifferent to it that it barely merits a mention in your life story. So I ask, and it all pours out. She swam the 50-metre backstroke, won race after race for her all-boys school and hated every minute of it. Not the swimming, that was fine, but the culture. Going to meets, the boys would all have fun together on the bus and I'd sit at the back, she says. I was never part of the squad. I was just there to bring the average of the team up. All of my teammates hated me. It says so much about how she viewed the world and how the world viewed her. Swimming was not the only sport she excelled in. She was the school's top high jumper and a gifted middle-distance runner. Did she take pride in her achievements? Not really. Not when teachers are poking fun at the way you move and calling you a Nancy boy because you're running away from the ball because you don't want to play rugby. Fast forward 23 years. And Bergdorf is a renowned model, writer and activist. She was the first trans person to appear on the cover of Cosmopolitan UK and to be hired, and fired, and eventually rehired by the cosmetics giant L'Oreal. Her achievements are indisputable, as are the many attacks she has been subject to. Bergdorf has been vilified in public for her views on race and gender, and abused in her private life. It's not been an easy ride. Her memoir, out this week, has been a long time in the making. 
She signed the book deal almost four years ago, but admits writing it has been a struggle. Not least because it's such a painful story to tell. It's been the most brutal form of therapy I can fathom, she says. It feels appropriate that the book is coming out now. The debate about transgender rights has never been so high profile or heated. In the latest census for England and Wales, only 0.2% of the population identified as transgender, equally split between men and women. But the issue has caused a mighty schism between Scotland and the rest of Britain. While arguments rage in Westminster and the Scottish Parliament over the Scottish Government's Gender Recognition Reform Bill, drafted to make it easier for people to transition, we've heard remarkably little from trans people themselves, which, Bergdorf tells me, is a huge part of the problem. We meet at a hotel in Soho, London. Bergdorf is strikingly beautiful, with an extraordinary stillness to her. Even when she cries, which she does more than once in the couple of hours we chat, she retains that stillness. And yet her anxiety is soon apparent. Congratulations on the book, I say. Thank you. What did you think? She replies, with a sense of urgency verging on panic. I'm really nervous. When you lay your life out there for people to consume, it's nerve-wracking. And she really does lay her life out here. It's part confessional, part manifesto, and part philosophical treatise. A guide to how we can all live together without tearing each other apart. With plenty of examples of how she has been torn apart, and tore herself apart, to get here. Transitional is a clever, moving book that packs a lot into its 194 pages. Yes, this is a story about Bergdorf's transition from he to she, but more importantly, it's about any number of transitions that we all go through in life. Culturally, politically, financially, intellectually, socially, you name it. As she says, barely a day passes where we don't evolve or transition in some way. Bergdorf, aged 36, grew up in Stansted Mount Fitchett, a conservative middle-class village in Essex. Her working-class parents had done well for themselves. Her white British mother had a senior job in financial PR. Her black Jamaican father was a carpenter and moved from London to Stansted. There were hardly any other black people in the neighbourhood, though this was never discussed when she was growing up. Her parents liked to think they were the perfect fit. She was happy at primary school, but as she grew up, she became increasingly alienated from her peers. Once gender roles were introduced and the girls and boys started dividing, I didn't really have a place, because I was too girly for the boys and I wasn't a girl, or seen as a girl. So I was ostracised. And the ostracism never stopped until I left high school. Her own family struggled with her sexuality and gender dysphoria. Her father, in particular, found it hard to accept that his son wanted to be a girl. She was at school during the era of Section 28, legislation introduced by Margaret Thatcher that banned schools from promoting homosexuality. 
In reality, this meant that teachers were terrified of even discussing sexuality, let alone trans issues. Meanwhile, Monroe was beginning to realise her skin was political, that she was judged for its colour. In 1999, the McPherson report into the murder of Stephen Lawrence and subsequent botched investigation by the Metropolitan Police was published. The report concluded that the Met was institutionally racist. Neither her father nor brother discussed it at home. It didn't seem relevant to their lives. But when she visited her extended family in London, it was a different story. They knew exactly why Stephen and his friend Dwayne Brooks were attacked without provocation by white strangers. It was blind hatred. They understood that they could have been the victims of the attack just as easily as Stephen. And so did Bergdorf. Because, as an effeminate black boy, she was particularly vulnerable. Bergdorf grew into a sad, angst-ridden teenager. While her struggles prevented her from excelling academically, she did well enough to win a place at the University of Brighton to study English. When she left home, she says, she was reborn. Did she finally feel she belonged when she got to university? She corrects me, gently. I felt I belonged in Brighton. I didn't go to university for reasons of academia. I went to start a different life. In Brighton, she began her transformation into the Monroe Bergdorf we see today, experimenting initially with clothes and makeup. After university, she worked for three years in fashion PR, then co founded the queer rave Pussy Palace in London's Brick Lane. At the age of 24, she began using hormones to transition and later had surgery. In her book, she is deliberately vague about what procedures she has undergone. Is she saying it's none of our business? Basically, yes. It's obvious that I've had surgery. It's the first thing you see about me. Do people ask? They do, but I don't normally feel I have to give them an answer. She pauses. If another trans girl asks me, I will talk about it because if it can help her feel as good as I feel within myself, then I will disclose what doctors I've gone to and what procedures I've had. But I also don't want to feed into the narrative for young trans people that in order to feel complete, they have to have these surgeries. The one thing Bergdorf does talk about in detail is facial feminization surgery. In 2018, she underwent a series of procedures including recontouring of the chin and brow bone. For most trans women, she says this matters so much more than what they do or don't do downstairs. It's my priority, because I show it to the world. But the ins and outs of what I've done, I don't talk about. She hopes the book is more about interiors than exteriors. People can see for themselves what she looks like. She wants to show us what it feels like to be her what it has taken to get to where she is today. She nibbles at a pan of raisin and tells me that the joy of her student years didn't last. She spent much of her twenties in chaos. Transition brought new challenges. There were so many dysfunctional relationships with men who fetishised her as a trans woman and despised themselves for doing so, she says. 
Invariably, their self-loathing ended up expressing itself in acts of violence towards Bergdorf. In the book, she describes a terrifying sexual assault by a man she met on a night out, who pushed cocaine up her nose and into her mouth as he raped her. When you look at someone and you know they want to kill you, and they don't see you as human enough to respect you when you say no, you don't want to have sex with them, and rape you anyway, that just kills a part of you. She chokes up. I don't know how I can unsee that. I still struggle to think of that period because I lost all hope. After that, I started hating myself a lot and entered abusive relationships because I didn't think I deserved any more. You went looking for them? I wasn't looking for them, but what I was attracted to wasn't healthy. I'd see people who would display controlling behaviour as somebody who cared. I just wasn't in a good place. That's awful, I say. She smiles and sniffs up her tears. It wasn't great. She says her story is the story of so many trans women. Dysfunctional relationships, abuse, seeking solace in drugs and alcohol, mental health collapsing. At one point, she was so worried that she called the police to protect her from herself. Not surprisingly, this period of her life was particularly tough to write about. Transitional has helped put it in context, she says. I do feel proud of myself for getting through it and for taking something positive from it. For a long time, I struggled to see the upside. Did she think she would get through it? It was touch and go. There was a lot I didn't put in the book put it that way. Did you try to take your life? The words don't come, so she nods. More than once? She nods again. I'm glad you didn't, I say. So am I. Don't make me cry. She laughs. Just about. While she was becoming increasingly desperate within herself, her public profile was growing. Drag queen, DJ, model, columnist. In 2014, the Evening Standard referred to her as a cornerstone of London's trans scene. And the more that was written about her, the less she really understood who she was. She began to believe her own press, whether good or bad. Then, in 2017, she was hired by L'Oreal. When the cosmetics giant got in touch, she initially assumed it was a joke, but sure enough they really did want her to be their first transgender model. Then barely before she had signed her contract, she was sacked for comments she had written on Facebook before getting the job. Bergdorf was responding to news of the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, where neo-Nazi James Alex Fields Jr. drove his car into a crowd of counter-protesters, injuring many and killing 32-year-old paralegal Heather Heyer. Bergdorf had posted a comment on Facebook saying that all white people were racist, from microaggressions to terrorism. The white race was the most violent and oppressive force of nature on earth, and that white existence, privilege and success as a race is built on the backs, blood and death of people of colour. Facebook removed the posts from its site regarding them as being in contravention of its rules against hate speech. While L'Oreal issued a statement that it 
supports diversity and tolerance towards all people irrespective of their race, background, gender and religion, and that Bergdorf's comments about white people were at odds with those values. It perhaps wasn't the most balanced or calm way of expressing your points, I say. Well, would you expect people who are heavily traumatised by racism to be balanced and calm? She fires back. The idea that people should speak about the trauma and oppression they have experienced in a way that is digestible for people who don't experience it. I mean, I was angry. We were watching one of the most violent displays of racism in recent history. It was horrendous. Of course I was angry, and I think I had a right to be. It wouldn't have had such impact if you'd expressed yourself in a more measured manner, I say. Well, exactly. Although Bergdorf's comments drew widespread criticism, there was huge support for her from those who believed it was outrageous that she had been labelled racist for calling out racism. I was the fool guy. In retrospect, I'm happy it happened because it did push the conversation forward. It got a lot of people talking. It went all over the world. But at the time, she was terrified by the response. The amount of death threats and rape threats... I saw a really dark side of humanity. When you see the level of hatred directed at you, it makes you fearful for your life. I was scared to go under the water when I was in the bath because I was convinced someone would hold me under. Things go through your head that you would never think of if you hadn't gone through that. Because of the threats. Yeah. People said they knew where I lived, that they were going to attack me with acid that they would get me when I least expected it. It was endless. Two years ago, she left Twitter, saying it was an unsafe place for transgender people and that social media companies won't, rather than can't, clamp down on transphobia. The L'Oreal incident was a turning point for Bergdorf. It came close to breaking her, but ultimately it proved her salvation. After a lifetime's self-sabotage, she fought for herself like never before. For her career, her reputation, her life. Until that point, I was fighting against myself, whether it was the relationships I was in or how I was treating myself with drink and drugs. Then, when my life moved into the public eye, I was forced to level up and start fighting for myself. I was on my own side for the first time. In 2020, after the racist killing of George Floyd in America, Bergdorf criticised L'Oreal Paris for posting on Instagram that it stood in solidarity with the black community. She said she had never received an apology for the way she had been treated by the company. In response, L'Oreal did apologise and invited Bergdorf onto its new inclusion advisory board. She accepted and is still working with the company today. Is this an example of the other kinds of transition she refers to in the book? I think so. It was transitioning out of an experience that didn't benefit anybody. I don't want to be at odds with the biggest beauty brand in the world for the rest of my life, and they obviously don't want to be seen in a bad light. They have offered me a way to move forward, to understand where they went wrong, and to better improve the practices of their company, and I can be part of that. That's a positive thing all round. 
Where cancel culture goes wrong is when people don't really want to find a resolve. They just want to cast people out of the kingdom or demonise people continually, even when they have shown they want to make amends. While dealing with the L'Oreal fallout, Bergdorf also found herself fighting on another front. The issue of trans women had become the surprising battleground on which the culture war was being fought in Britain. Younger generations have been pitted against older, Westminster against the Scottish Parliament. While Bergdorf and her allies argue that trans rights are on a par with previous battles for racial and sexual equality, gender-critical activists argue that trans women threaten the safety of biological women and the sanctity of single-sex spaces. Although Bergdorf is appalled by the fact that the trans community has been weaponised by politicians, she's not surprised. We've seen it all before, she says. Whenever there are gains made from a marginalised community, there is always a pushback. Just before black people gained civil rights, there was a war. And are we in the middle of a war now? Definitely. There is definitely a war on trans people. It's not a civil war, but it's a war within the media. It's a war on trans people and we are fighting literally for our lives. As for the government, Bergdorf believes it is targeting trans people as a distraction. The trans community is too small to pander to, but big enough to exploit for the Conservative government. And the Conservative government has always needed an enemy. The Tories function within an environment of fear, especially with the need to deflect from their own shortcomings. This is what we're seeing from Rishi Sunak in a time of multiple crises, focusing on a community that he should be helping. There are so many issues that the trans community is facing, but we are being painted as the issue. A week after Bergdorf and I meet, Sunak announces that his government will try to block Scotland's Gender Recognition Reform Bill, which was passed by the Scottish Parliament in December. The bill reduces the minimum age for transitioning from 18 to 16, eradicates the need for a psychiatric diagnosis of gender dysphoria in order to obtain a gender recognition certificate, and reduces the time people have to live in their acquired gender before applying for a certificate from two years to three months for those over 18 and six months for people aged 16 and 17. It's the first time Westminster has tried to stop a Scottish bill becoming law since the Scottish Parliament was established in 1999. While we see any number of politicians and commentators discussing trans rights, Bergdorf points out that trans people have been notable for their absence in the debate on their future. The reasons are twofold, she says. The trans community in general doesn't trust mainstream media, and mainstream media has not prioritised hearing trans voices. The result is unsatisfactory at best. Imagine if the same were true for other minorities, she says. We're not looking to white people to be the authority on the black experience. Meanwhile, Bergdorf says... Britain's most vulnerable minority are continuing to die at an alarming rate. A few years ago, Bergdorf was asked in front of a live audience when she had come out. She replied she'd done so three times, 
first as gay, then trans, and most recently as pansexual. Back then, the term pansexual was less familiar, so she helped the audience with a definition. I'll sleep with anybody. If I find you attractive and we've got a connection, it's fair game, she said. It got a big laugh. On public platforms, Bergdorf can be po-faced and intense, largely because she is being interrogated, but she can also be very funny. In Transitional, she says the first functional, loving relationship she has had was with Ava, a trans woman she dated for three years. Bergdorf has a tiny cross tattooed on her right wrist. She got it on a day trip to Brighton with Ava, who got a matching one. Transitional is dedicated to Ava's memory. I ask Bergdorf what happened to her, fearing the worst. She seems thrown by the question and edges her way to an answer. Um, um, she passed away in summer. How old was she? She was 33. Was she ill or did she take her life? Bergdorf looks distraught. She tries to answer, but an anguished noise comes out of her mouth, part groan, part wail. She took her own life, she says eventually. I'm still processing it, she says. Now, her anger is unmistakable. I just don't know what these people think they're doing. We're being talked about like we're a hypothetical, like we're not real, like it doesn't affect us and we're burying our loved ones because of it. People are losing their lives because of it. Was that the case with Ava? I wasn't there. When someone takes their own life, I'm sure there are a number of reasons, but I know the current climate had an impact on her. Just like it's having an impact on every trans person in the country. She was the first person I ever loved, truly. I can't imagine my life having not met her. Tears are streaming down her cheeks. I'm sorry, it's really fresh. She had so much to live for. How many people are going to die, and how many people are going to end up in situations like I've been in, where they can't love themselves, because the environment they are in encourages them to hate themselves? I'm really, really tired of it. Because when I have to bury my ex-girlfriend and see her family in pieces, I don't even really have the words for it. People think there is no consequence for their actions because they don't even see us as human beings. She finally comes to a stop, sniffs back more tears and apologises. There really are no words. I'm heartbroken. The way that it happened is no way that anybody should go. We sit in silence for a while. I'm searching for a positive. I ask Bergdorf which of the many transitions she has made that she's most proud of. She smiles and says despite everything, there have been so many recently. It's only a year since she was last hospitalised with anxiety and depression, but she truly believes she's turned the corner. For the past 18 months, she has been in a relationship with a British chef who works in France. This is the first relationship I've had with a man that feels healthy and wholesome and encouraging. He's incredible. She shows me a picture of him, handsome, topless and blonde, alongside her miniature Yorkie, a bitch called Teddy. She's obviously proud of both of them. 
And then there's her greatly improved relationship with her parents. Over the past few years, her father has opened up about the racism he experienced in Britain. He told me that a woman who worked in the corner shop would never put money in his hand, she says. She refused to touch him. She would always put money on the counter. They now have a much better understanding of each other. What about the swimming? Has she swum competitively since school? No, 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 no. (laughs) I stopped swimming competitively when I started having gender dysphoria at school. Does she swim for pleasure now? Yes. Fast? Not fast. My body is not as hydrodynamic as it used to be because there's a lot more of it. She laughs. She's still contemplating the transition she's most proud of. I think it's the place that I'm in right now. I'm the most consistently happy I've been in my entire life. I've got so much love in my life and things to be happy for. I never saw that I would be in this position. She pauses. I never really thought I would be alive at this point. Is she off medication now? No, I'm on a very low dose of antidepressants. Not that that matters. I never saw this part of my life. I never planned this far. Even though it was a really hard year last year, with losing Ava and starting the year in a really dark place, ever since those really tough moments, I have fallen back in love with life. Finishing the book, she says, is a relief and a release. Now she doesn't have to tell anybody her story. It's there in writing. And she finally believes she knows who she is. What's more... She likes Monroe Bergdorf and is happy to hang out with her. I really feel this is my life now, she says. And I'm not going to allow it to be dictated to by anybody else. That was I Never Really Thought I'd Be Alive at This Point. Monroe Bergdorf on cancel culture, trans rights and how she fell back in love with life by Simon Hattonstone. Read by Evelyn Miller. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this piece, we have included details of helplines you can contact on the episode page at theguardian.com. Before we go, I want to tell you about an offer from The Guardian. If you subscribe to our newspapers today, you can get up to 42% off, meaning you only pay £1.60 per issue. The offer ends on Sunday the 19th of February 2023. Just search Guardian Newspaper Subscription. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. This week's articles were read by Evelyn Miller and Mark Elstob and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.